Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. This episode was released on July 20th, 2022, which just so happened to be my 34th anniversary of sobriety. So in the spirit of sobriety anniversaries, I thought I would take the opportunity to share my recovery story. It's a story that's changed over the years as I continue to draw new lessons from it and gain better insight into my past. I hope that it's meaningful to you, uh, that if it does anything at all, it at least serves to provide a connection. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. Each and every person in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for recovery. Maybe it's a husband, wife, daughter, son, mom, dad, best friend, colleague, job, hobby, or just yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery, we're all in this together. On Beyond Belief Sobriety, our mission includes building a strong community, staying connected, and working to break the stigma. That's why we've partnered with Soberlink, to expand and strengthen our community even further. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition, That allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones who can offer support in the event of a slip or relapse. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help rebuild trust and foster peace of mind. Soberlink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at Soberlink.com slash BBS. And now, episode 276, my story for the 34th time. Now, I used to put a lot more weight on recovery stories and my own personal recovery story than I do now, but I still think there's a lot of value in it. It's good for me, number one, to think about, you know, where I've been and what I've learned and where I'm going. But hopefully it's 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 a way that I can communicate what I've learned to somebody who might benefit from that and maybe... I can make a connection to someone out there who is newly sober and might be able to learn something from my experience. I hope that's the case. So, you know, 34 years is a lot of time to cover. (laughs) So I'm not going to go into a lot of great detail about the drinking before that and all the last 34 years, but I will kind of break it down to, you know, really important periods of my life where I went through different phases of learning and different phases of growth. And I'll also take a look at my background, um, you know, so you can get an idea of how I grew up, the type of family I grew up in. And I'm just going to relate that to you to the best of my ability as I understand it today. One thing I know for sure is as I have shared my story over the years, it has always changed and has always has evolved as my understanding has changed and evolved of my recovery and my past. So I will tell you that um, I grew up in a military family, and I think that's important because there's 
there's some certain issues with army, <laughs> army, navy, air force brats than there are with your regular person. And I think I think one of those things is that, you know, I don't really have a strong connection with a place in my past. You know, we moved around a lot. We lived in different places, which was always a great experience. But I, I I don't have a really strong connection with the past. I can't tell you who I went to kindergarten with or who I went to first grade with or who I went to fourth grade with. You know, I don't have those kinds of memories like a lot of people do. I don't have, you know, memories of a specific place um, from my childhood We because of all the different places that we lived. But there was also a lot of advantage to that, too, because I grew up um, really young in life being exposed to different cultures and different experiences and different ways of living. And I, uh, fortunately, my father in the army was taught to appreciate diversity and he instilled that in, in me and, and the rest of us kids, which I'm really glad he did. We, as a family, were very adventurous. Anytime we moved someplace, we always wanted to explore the area and get to know, um, you know, experience it to the best that we could. So when we lived in Europe, you know, I, I grew up in the Netherlands. Uh, at least I was there for my grade school years for four years. And uh, we traveled all over Europe. You know, we camped out in Spain and we camped out in Germany and, and Switzerland and Italy and Belgium we, we saw it all, and it was a lot of fun. There was another side, of course, to the family. You know, my mother, her side of the family really was struck with mental illness in a really serious way that has carried on into the present generation. And as far back as I know, it would really start with my grandfather or her father. You know, when she was in high school, he suffered depression terribly. And when she was in high school, um, he committed suicide. He jumped off a bridge and ended his life. And I know that was a significant impact on her, which also impacted me, you know, um, down the line. So she suffered from depression as well. And so growing up, I, you know, I had to experience her mood swings and her, um, you know, sometimes just really dagger-like attacks on my, on my, my self-esteem. But at the same time, she could also be loving and fun and silly and that. So there was a lot of unpredictability there with her, with my relationship with her. I never knew what to expect from one time to the next. Um, a lot of the time, she was under heavy drugs and 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 sleeping for hours and hours. Um, and those are the memories that I have of her. My father, he um, he was a good guy. He he was you know like I said, he was army. <laughs> he was an officer. He uh, was a veteran of Vietnam, and he was a tough person. He he was a lot of fun. He he had he had real interest in us kids and enjoyed talking with us and spoke with us in a real respectful way. You know, I could sit down like have adult conversations with him. You know, but he could also um, he could also be very um, very much the strict disciplinarian. So if I ever did anything wrong the punishment was always severe and it was physical. So I was afraid of him. Uh, there was a lot of fear. I mean, uh, I could hear the car door close when he came home and it was just the stress. I would feel the stress. So kind of a mixed bag in my household. It wasn't good or bad growing up, but there was a lot of, um, I didn't always feel safe. I didn't always feel confident that I knew what to expect in that household. There was a lot of chaos. My family, you know, my mother being being depressed, there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of yelling and screaming in the house. So 
um, you know, I would run and hide when that was going on. So that that was kind of the that was kind of my my growing up years. Can't say it was bad. Can't say it was good. It's just what I experienced. Uh, there was some trauma related to it. And the trauma, I guess, would just be that I wasn't completely safe or didn't feel always safe in my family. And that's where drinking comes in. You know, I started drinking very young, which is, you know, I was eight years old the first time I ever had a drink. And that happened when my mother on Thanksgiving um, allowed me to have a glass of wine and I drank it and liked it immediately. I immediately I sensed there was something about the alcohol that was doing something for me that I needed. I, I, I wasn't processing processing that where I you know f- was thinking that, but looking back on it, the feeling that I had was it was it was giving me something. And so I quickly learned that you know the vanilla extract that we kept in the kitchen cabinet had alcohol in it, and when I parents had their many parties there would be leftover glasses of wine and whiskey and bourbon whatever around and i could always drink from the empty half empty glasses uh, the next day and i did so i had this attraction to alcohol there was something about it that did something for me even as just a very young boy when i was 12 years old that's when i got drunk for the first time i was walking by uh my parents' bar in our home. Uh, they had a bottle of liqueur on the bar, and I started drinking it. Drank most of the bottle, got really drunk. Uh, this wasn't anything that made them angry. They thought it was kind of humorous and funny that I I would do that. They were surprised, you know, that I was I was smashed. Uh, the next day, um, I was so sick, and what characterized my drinking really was. It was it was just typical from that very first time I got drunk. I was the next day I was immediately remorseful, regretful, sick, depressed, and I swore I'd never do it again. And so I didn't until I was fourteen and went into high school and then started drinking with my friends. And you know, it didn't take long for things to progress. You know, by the time I was nineteen years old. I was looking at an advertisement in the Lawrence Journal World in Lawrence, Kansas, thinking about going to an AA meeting at the age of 19. So I immediately dismissed that thought and continued to drink. And when I was 21 years old and living at home, my mother died from an overdose. It was suicide. And I was there. I witnessed it. I was with her when she died. And it was traumatic. It was a shock. And what was even more traumatic, though, is that my family wouldn't even acknowledge what it was that I had just witnessed. You know, they wouldn't admit openly that it was a suicide. It was just further stigma on top of stigma. You know, her entire life was stigmatized. And that wasn't very helpful. But, you know, a few days after her death, somebody offered me a shot of whiskey. And they offered it to me as if it was medicine, as if it was something that was going to make me feel better. And you know what? It really did. And so I drank that shot of whiskey and it took away all the pain and the fear and whatever I was feeling from that event that I witnessed with my mother's suicide. It took it away. And I guess I chased that for the next four years. So from the ages of 21 to 25, My drinking just got completely out of control. I had three DUIs during that period of time. And by the time I'm 25 years old, I find myself standing on a bridge ready to jump off and end it all. But I didn't, as you can see. (laughs) I walked across the bridge. I got to a telephone. I called Alcoholics Anonymous and I asked for help. 
I've been sober ever since, and I've been on this journey of recovery that I'm on now. So that's the drunkalog part. That's my little background. That's where I got into drinking and what drinking did to me. Now I want to talk about recovery. And this is, this is the most of my life. I've been in recovery for 34 years. The majority of my life, I have been sober and in recovery, which is absolutely incredible to me. I'm grateful that, that, that that's been the case. I mean, it could have been a completely different. My life could have gone a completely different direction, and I know that. So I'm very happy with how things turned out. But 34 years is a lot of time to cover. But what I can do, I can look back. I, I Looking back at my time sober, I, I can see different periods of my life where I experienced different, you know, I learned different things and went through different phases. And I think I'm going to go through those with you as a way to maybe help you, you know, learn something quicker than perhaps I did. So I think I should start with my first decade in AA. So from 1988 to 1999, really, I'm going to an all men's AA group that was really focused on the 12 steps and the big book and um, describing the recovery process as a spiritual experience. I didn't have any experience with religion at all. My parents didn't raise me in religion. We didn't go to church growing up. Uh, I thought the God stuff was weird at first when I was first exposed to it in AA. But being the good army kid, I knew how to adapt to that culture. I just, I just saw AA as another foreign country and a language to, 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 to learn to navigate. And so I did. I learned to speak the way that they... That, that they, where they would acknowledge with approval that what I was saying comported with the norms of the group. And maybe we all do that to a certain extent. That might be just normal group dynamics that we do that. <clears throat> but I, I, I think I'm particularly good at it. Maybe it's just, just, just me. But I did that. I, at first, I rationalized that, you know, all the religious practices and so forth that you find in AA, they must have some psychological benefit underneath. Uh, then after a while, I even stopped rationalizing. I just was going through the motions, I guess. And that was for 10 years. And that's the way I lived. I had basically a very low-paying job. I had a small apartment in a pretty rough area of town. I had a lot of good friends. I had a lot of support. I was staying sober. And that was about it. My AA was pretty much the center of my life. It was everything. You know, all my friends were in AA. All my activities were in AA. Everything revolved around AA, AA meetings. That was my life for 10 years. Now, looking back on that, I, I wish that I wish that I would have broken out a little bit sooner, but it took a little shock to my system to do that. What happened was in 1999, my father died completely unexpectedly. So I'm 35 years old. I've been sober for 10 years, and my father dies immediately and just an, an unusual circumstances. And I begin to reflect on my, on my life in comparison to his, which I, I, I know isn't a very healthy thing to do, but I, I couldn't help but compare my life and what I had achieved by the age of 35 and everything that he had done. And there was no comparison. There was nothing that I could look on with any pride of accomplishing other than not drinking and, not, and staying out of jail I also started thinking about, you know, that there was really nothing my father could be proud of me about other than the fact that I wasn't drinking. During that first 10 years of sobriety, I had no goals. You know, I had no real purpose 
for being sober, but it wasn't bad. Life was okay. And I was fine and getting better. But I really started to grow when I began to examine the dreams that I had before my drinking took those away and realizing that I could reach those dreams and realize those dreams, that I was capable of, of getting back something. And that's what recovery is all about. You know, the word recovery means recovering something, getting something back. So what is it that you want to recover? You know, you can recover your health, you can recover your dreams, you can recover all kinds of different things as part, part of your recovery. And ideally, early on, you don't, you don't have to wait 10 years like me. You can decide what you want your sober life to look like, and you can set out to recover the dreams that you lost when you were drinking. But anyway, it took me some time to learn that. But I did. So for, for a 10-year period of time, almost, or just about, I would say this was going from uh, 1999 to 2006, I began working to achieve goals. So I go back to college, I get a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, I buy a house, I get married. I end up having a very happy, normal life, really the kind of life that I dreamt that I would have one day. The dream that I let go of because of what I had become when I was drinking. Remember, you know, when, when we're, when we're, when, when I was drinking anyway, it, 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 I was a failure in everything I ever tried during those drinking years. I couldn't, I couldn't achieve anything. So even sober for 10 years, I probably saw myself still as a big loser, just a loser who could stay sober. I never really saw myself as being able to recapture, you know, what I wanted for my life. I'm lucky that, you know, I was still relatively young, you know, um, so from 35 to you know, my mid 40s, I'm sitting there doing the things that I need to do to have the life that I have today. And I'm grateful that I have it. Now, one interesting thing during that period of time is AA was no longer the center of my life like it was before. I began experiencing more of my life outside of the rooms. And that's really important. You know, it's really easy to hide in AA or life ring even or smart recovery. It's really easy to get in a place where you're comfortable and stay there and not challenge yourself by going out into the world and meeting people who aren't in recovery, you know, and doing things in life. And that's really what we should be doing. That's what, that's what we should be, you know, striving for as part of the recovery process is just to have normal interactions in the world, be part of part of the world. So that's what I was doing that during that time when I'm, you know, setting goals, achieving goals. Also during this time, I start thinking more critically about everything. I start thinking more critically about, in particular, AA and my belief system. So now I'm going back to where I was in the beginning, where I'm thinking, okay, I don't really believe the God stuff, but there must be some psychological process going on here that um that this is explaining is what i was thinking in the beginning and now i'm going back to that again i'm thinking okay the god stuff really isn't i don't believe it you know uh, i stop uh, you know they have you pray in aa they have you get on your knees in the morning and the night you know and i i, I did that for quite a while but i stopped at a certain point i was no longer doing that because i didn't believe it anymore but i was still talking the aa language where the group would approve of what i was saying but I'm starting to think differently about everything. 
And it was really probably around 2011, 2010, 2012, sometime around there, where I really start questioning my beliefs more. And I, I believe this is a time when, you know, we had a lot of podcasts out there and I was listening to atheist podcasts and I was getting, I was buying books and, and reading about atheism. And I realized that I was an atheist and it scared me at first. And I started researching atheists and A and everything. And I, it was really hard to find anything. So this must've been like 2010, 2011. I don't know. But anyway, that's where I was. But I started thinking about things and the, I just realized that, you know, this this is my this is my belief system, but I wasn't comfortable expressing that in my AA group. I was still kind of hiding that. And then I learned about um, these agnostic AA groups that that are all over the place and have been since 1975. And I started talking to people online and through online chat groups and stuff. And then in 2014, I went to a conference, the We Agnostics and Free Thinkers and AA the international conference in Santa Monica, California in 2014. And that was a game changer for me because I met a lot of people who are still in my life to this day, but I met people from all over the world who were experiencing AA in a very secular practical way without any need for a God. And they came in all different stripes and shapes. So you had some that were like militantly against God, against the steps. And then you had some that thought, that there was still room for spirituality, that the steps were important, that you could you could translate them in a secular way. So you had all kind there was all kinds of exciting new information that was coming into my brain at that time. So and I'm and I'm learning who I am. Now, just before that conference in August of 2014, I had left my traditional AA group because I didn't feel comfortable there anymore. Um, after I started speaking my truth and being authentic with them and talking about how I understood AA in a completely secular, practical way, it wasn't acceptable to them. So I started my own AA group for, you know, agnostics and atheists in Kansas City. And that was going to be eight years old now. So this is my, this is where I'm going now. I'm, I'm, I'm going into this phase where I'm an AA member, but I'm completely secular and my purpose is now to get involved with AA service locally and online because I wanted to make AA more inclusive and open and modern. So I was very, very involved in service work. And so in 2015, I started this website. And this is after I'd already done a website called WAF Central or We Agnostics and Freethinkers and AA, a, a website for them. Then we did this website, AA Beyond Belief. And that came about because Roger C. had a website and still does, AA Agnostica. And he was going to retire. And he asked me if I would start a website to replace it. So that's when I created AA Beyond Belief. So you had AA Agnostica, which is no more. Now you're going to have AA Beyond Belief. And what it was is we would ask um, atheists, agnostics, and free-thinking people in Alcoholics Anonymous to submit stories to us. So it would be like an an agnostic atheist AA grapevine basically. And we published all these stories and it was, it was really an amazing experience, but it was a lot of work. And then on top of this, a, a top of this website work that I was doing, this is also the time that I started the podcast. The podcast went with the website at the time. The podcast was also called AA beyond belief. And the majority of the stories had to do with, you know, 
secularizing AA, secularizing the 12 steps and so forth. But anyway, very exciting time of growth for me, but also, you know, taxing on my time. And I eventually found that I was just really over committing myself. And by 2020, I was completely burned out on service work at the group level here locally, at the district and area level here in Missouri, and online with the secular AA organization and with my work on AA Beyond Belief. Really, the only thing that I really enjoyed doing that I was passionate about still was this podcast. So I made a decision to let go of a lot of stuff. And so, you know, with COVID, our, our group was no longer meeting in person. So I started doing things online. So I was already familiar with different recovery groups like Smart Recovery and Life Ring and so forth through, through the podcast. So I studied with uh, Smart Recovery and I got my certification. I think I got it in 2021 or 2020. I was certified by Smart Recovery to be a meeting facilitator. So I learned more about the Smart Recovery tools. And then later, you know, just this last year, I did a lot of episodes with Arthur, Arthur Shanker about the Smart, Reco- Smart Recovery tools. And I was really interested in that and still am. And then also in 2020... I took I took a um, course to be certified as a peer specialist in the state of Missouri, a certified peer specialist. And what that is, is a peer specialist is an advocate for somebody who's in recovery. So most of them work in the treatment rehab industry, and they work as an advocate for the person in recovery along with a treatment team, and they act as that person's advocate. So they, they work with the treatment team to for what is best for that person. They also help the person in recovery identify their recovery goals, what obstacles are keeping them from achieving those goals, and then helping inspire them and motivate them to to achieve those goals. It's a great idea. And, and, you know, you think of them as recovery coaches. Um, They call them um, peer specialists here. But that's that's basically what I, I learned to do. And I found and I still love doing I still love it. I don't do it professionally myself. But I get to participate in meetings every every two weeks um, with other peer specialists in Missouri. So I learn about you know what's going on in the recovery community in my particular state, and it keeps me informed and interested in learning. And it, it also inspires me to know that there's a lot of good people in Missouri who are doing a lot of good work on behalf of um, people who are suffering from addiction to drugs and alcohol. So a lot of good stuff is being done here, as I know is being done around the country. I like being part of that. I like I love that advocacy type of work, and probably you know in the next several years or so, whenever I retire, um, I might want to do more of that um, advocacy work um, for people in recovery. I, I I really do enjoy that. So during this time, this post COVID time, also becomes kind of a post um, AA recovery time for me. So, you know, I was already kind of changing on my view of the steps. So, you know, at first I see the steps as essential and important and that we really need to just just take a secular approach to them. But then I learned to see them for what I think they are today, which is just the way that these people in the 1930s described the experience that they were having. They just happened to list them in linear fashion and number them. And 
There's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of people to this day who find that really helpful to have that structure and even to go through the steps linearly. But I will tell you that the recovery process is not is not linear, that you will go back and forth to different areas and the steps are the same way. You know, if you read the steps and you see what's you see what the the experience is or the action is, you you will see that during different times you'll experience different different parts of that. It's not like is it one, two, three, bam, 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 like that. But anyway, it's nice to have some structure. But I started I started realizing that the steps as written really weren't important and the steps in general really weren't that critical. What was what's really important is what is is to respect that everybody has their own pathway to recovery and to sobriety and to support that in any way that's possible. And when you break it all down, recovery is just a human experience. You know, you, you reach this point where, you know, you're desperate, your life has fallen apart. You start recognizing that you have a problem, you know, you, that just kind of happens. You might, you might get some motivation. You might get some help for that. But then you realize that, you know, maybe there's some help and then you make a decision to change, you know, and then you get honest with yourself and you start, you know, looking at your, your thoughts and your behaviors and monitoring those on a regular basis and you start repairing your relationships and you start, you know, seeking some peace and, and wanting to help people, which basically is the process laid out in the 12 steps, you know, and I see that process in, in all forms of recovery, but that's just me because I grew up essentially with the 12 steps. They were part of my life for the majority of my lifetime. So I haven't abandoned them completely and I still enjoy talking about them and will continue to do that on this podcast because I recognize that there's a lot of secular people who get value from, you know, experiencing the 12 steps and understanding them in a secular way. And I can help with that because I know that language. I don't personally need it for myself right now, but that doesn't mean I have discarded it. But the biggest change for me in, in the post-COVID and my post-AA recovery is that I realized that what my priorities are, what's important to me, and I needed to make a break from a lot of the AA work that I was doing because, quite frankly, it was just becoming a job, a job I didn't like anymore. So I, I, I quit my service positions locally and with the um, secular AA people and just focused on this podcast and um, experienced a lot of freedom in that and that, you know, I can go to AA meetings, but I don't have to worry about being a member of anything or being responsible for anything or having to be of service or any of that. Um, I can just go to a meeting and get something out of it if I want to. And, you know, honestly, that's true for everybody. I think AA is the only of the recovery programs I know of that refer to the people who go to the meetings as members. So AA is kind of different in that they have kind of this society built up around their around their um, program, I guess, their fellowship. And so it's a bit different. And there's a lot of good stuff in that because it's nice to have the sense of community. That's really important. In fact, I've built a community for myself just around this podcast you know, now on every Tuesday, we have listener meetings at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time for people who listen to podcasts. 
and it's a recovery meeting. So what we do is we'll either invite a guest from a previous episode, come and speak for like 20 minutes. And then we have our discussion around that, or I'll play a clip for 20 or 30 minutes from a previous episode. And we'll use that as a basis of our conversation and they're nice meetings. And it has helped build a sense of community around this podcast. Then Mary and I um, started the the live streams again. Angela and I did them previously from March of 2020 to for a couple of years. And then um, Mary and I recently over the last few months ago uh, started picking up on those again. And so that's another way of building community. So basically every Saturday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time, Mary and I do this live stream. We usually have about 20 people there live and people will have a topic that we'll discuss and people can participate by commenting in the live chat there in YouTube or Facebook, or they can call in on our toll-free number and talk to us that way, like a call-in radio or something. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, and it's just another way of building community around this podcast. That And I also have one-on-one meetings available for listeners. So I make my calendar available for people who might want to talk to me individually and they can schedule time and, and we can have a one-on-one conversation. And I enjoy that. I love connecting with you um, as a listener. It's just that 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 just makes this even more precious to me. Um, I've gotten so much benefit out of this podcast, and I appreciate that it wouldn't have been possible if it w- weren't for the people listening and giving me feedback. So over the years, you know, I've gotten emails, um, messages, phone calls, all of that, and it is just you know, I love it. So keep, keep doing that. Um, the connection that you get to make with people through podcasting is really special. This is a really good medium for people in recovery because it's, it's accessible. It's easy. You know, you can listen to a podcast on your way to work, on your way back from work. It's almost like having a meeting, you know, you can listen to it a second time. You know, there's a lot of value in it. And plus you've, you have that sense of connection and a lot of the recovery podcasts, because the community I'm building around this podcast, I learned that from other recovery podcasters on how to build a community. So a lot of these podcasts do have communities built up around them, if, if nothing more than just a, an online Facebook group. So I think that pretty much sums up my story for the 34th time. And I can assure you that when I share my story for the 35th time, it'll be a little bit different. I hope that I achieve my goal here in helping you in some way that maybe you got something out of this, that maybe there was a lesson that I learned that you might find some value in, or if nothing more that you just, you know, it just reaffirmed for you what recovery means for you, that it gave you a connection with someone else in recovery. If that's all it did, then then that's all we need, need to have accomplished. So mission accomplished. Thank you again for giving me this opportunity to, um, host this podcast. It's just the best thing I've got going on right now, and I I don't. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. 
If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.